Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We've been following the Gospel according to St. Luke, and today we're going to look at Luke uh, chapter 14, 25 to 33. This gospel is a follow-up of uh, a gospel that we've heard recently and that is in the same series whereby Jesus is talking about coming to bring fire and division and so forth. Using the Hebraic imagery that is, uh, that is very particular to the Middle East, where in order to emphasize something tremendously important, one tends to exaggerate it. And in that, in that hyperbola then, draw attention to the core of what the person is saying. And I think that for us sometimes it becomes very difficult um, to uh, kind of process this because we have the tendency, if it is said in the extreme, to simply be dismissive of it. And because somehow or other it doesn't fit into our gospel narrative that runs within our own minds or our own experience. But we dare not do that because the the hyperbola is there for a reason, for a very important reason. And it is to draw our attention to the extreme situation to which the Lord is speaking or to the intensity of what he is trying to communicate. And if we simply dismiss the extreme by saying, well, that's just too extreme, um, then we also miss the point of the emphasis the Lord is making to us in our personal lives and in our lives within the community of believers. So the gospel starts out that great crowds accompanied Jesus on his way and he turned and he spoke to them. In Matthew's gospel, these kinds of hyperbolic uh, statements are usually addressed to the disciples, to the twelve. But here, Luke has them addressed to a huge crowd, which means that in Luke's idea, Luke's understanding, the audience who is gathered to the Lord increases in numbers. And the more it increases the numbers, the more explicit the Lord becomes. And and I think that this is kind of an interesting phenomenon for us to to think about and for us to deal with. When we speak to large numbers of people, and if we come across in some way vague, we might as well have saved our breath, because each person has the tendency to receive and to accept what is said in kind of in structured within the framework of their own thoughts and their own minds. And that, therefore, the more vague and the more ambivalent something is that we say, the less impact it really has in people's lives, because the more they somehow or other reconfigure it to fit their own preconceived notions, their own preconceived ideas. This is why, for instance, the great uh, messianic secret in the Gospel of St. Mark and the others as well, but particularly Mark does it, that, um, that Jesus forbids people to witness to him as the Messiah, whether it be the disciples themselves or whether it be the demons who know who he is. Because, what, because the idea of Messiah is so vague in the Jewish expectation 
Um, not all Jews uh, anticipated a Messiah, but those that did had very fixed ideas about who it might be. And those ideas were wide and were varied. The Holocene community, who came closer to the truth, um, spent its entire life poring over the prophets, and especially the prophecies of Isaiah, trying to understand who it was that was to come and how they were to recognize that person. Um, so that Jesus says, don't issue vague terms, don't say vague things, um, but be very specific about what you say, because then and only then will you be able to overcome the, uh, the subjective manipulations of each human's personal understanding. And that the word Messiah was not yet clear. It was not yet fixed because the Lord had not yet died and risen from the dead. So by using the term Messiah, all of the subjective narratives would come into play and everyone would take then what they had heard and reconfigure it to their own expectations, their own thoughts, their own minds. This is why in, in the Catholic Church, for instance, we have always found it necessary to speak in very restrictive, clear, and definite terminology because the church, the magisterial church, speaks to a billion people. If we, be, if we began to focus on exceptions, if we began to focus on, on the vagueness of what we're saying, we might as well ultimately in the end say nothing. Because what will happen, it will get then reconfigured subjectively into the minds of a billion different people, separated by culture and language and all of those kinds of things. We speak concisely and clear because by the time the concise, clear declaration filters down into the base of the whole, there is only a small kernel of it left anyway. And that if we take that, that, that definitiveness, that clarity, that conciseness away, when it gets down to where the small kernel should be there, there is nothing but an empty space. Jesus is aware of this in his whole approach to the messianic secret. And he's aware of it in the gospel today. As Luke assures us, he's speaking to a great crowd of people. And so he's speaking in hyperbola, he's speaking in extreme, because by the time it settles into each of those people's heart, into each of those people's understanding, it will be reduced to probably what he intended it to mean in the first place. But if he were to say what he intended to mean in the first place, it would be reduced to nothingness in the mind and the heart of the crowd. So, he says to the crowd, the huge crowd, if any man comes to me without hating his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Extreme and, uh, and hyperbola, and it certainly attracts attention it certainly comes and people are kind of taken aback by that. They're kind of shocked by that, saying, well, he's supposed to bring love and peace and understanding and reconciliation and forgiveness and so forth. And here he say, unless you hate everyone around you, you can't be my disciple. What does that mean? And that's the question we're supposed to ask ourselves. What does it mean? And then Jesus goes on to say, anyone who does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
And so he then says, if you are not willing to suffer for what you believe, you are not worthy to be a disciple of the Lord. For if, in fact, your discipleship with the Lord Jesus is so intense and so extreme, there will be people who will reject you because of that. And as they do so, it becomes your burden, your cross. And if you're not willing to do that, you will not end up a disciple of the Lord. You might end up something else, but you're not going to end up a disciple of the Lord. I think we see that certainly in contemporary society, as the hostility toward Christianity grows within our secular society. We can see the venom that is spewed forth um, toward those who advocate somehow the uh, radical discipleship of the Lord, the radical faithfulness to the declaration and the words of the Lord. Many contemporary Christians therefore say, well, I can't endure this kind of social isolation. I can't endure this kind of opposition from my neighbors. And so I will accommodate and I will in some way, shape or form, I will mitigate my Christian positions and allow and accept secular ideas to kind of... uh, Um, lessen them, to kind of integrate into them, to kind of become kind of a syncretistic kind of faith life where, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Catholic, I believe in Jesus Christ, but after all, I'm open-minded and I can see some of the value and what of the values that secular society is saying, even though they do contradict that which comes from the church. And so I'll just settle into a form of syncretism and then all will be well in my life. And uh, even then, they will receive opposition, but it certainly will be much less, and they'll be judged less harshly and seen less ignorant or primitive or hostile than those who hold firmly to the revelation of the faith. I think that we find that happening, too, in many of the mission countries. Um, It it certainly is characteristic of the Society of Jesus in, in India, for instance, to kind of enter into kind of a syncretistic religion of sorts, whereby saying, well, God is the author of all things, so there's nothing wrong with integrating paganism into Christianity. Except for the fact, if we were to do so with great discretion, in other words, if we were to do so with deep faith, we would ask ourselves, how is this Christian message to be integrated into um into pagan society, and yet not lose its truth, its foundation, its divine origin. Probably one of the great masters of this was uh, Pope uh, Gregory the Great, who, when he sent Augustine um, to to uh, Canterbury to kind of refound the Christian Church in England, that. Augustine tended to be rather harsh and tear down the temples and so forth. And Gregory admonishes him, you know, Christianize them. Don't destroy them, Christianize them. And But the danger with that always is that, Christian, that the Christianity will be paganized instead. And so there has to be a deep faith and a deep commitment to Jesus Christ and a deep faith and deep commitment to the tradition of the church and to the magisterium of the church among those who set out to enculturate Christianity into pagan cultures. 
Um, one of the first great crises of this, of course, after the integration of Hebrew thought into the Hellenic world of the West, which was something that took centuries under the faithful guidance of the fathers and certainly um, entered definitively into the Western culture through the writings of, of Augustine. Um, certainly the Jesuit Matteo Ricci in China um, did a great job of putting this forward, but always, of course, with dangers and always never arrogantly or never saying, you know, well, I'm right, but trying to find ways to integrate. Francis Xavier did the same thing. When he came as the poor beggar from Europe onto Japanese soil, he was looked upon as, as uh, he wasn't taken seriously. But once he adapted Japanese dress and style, then they would listen to him. Now, that was something that is what a saint would do to integrate the authentic Christian message into a non-Christian culture. Unfortunately, most of us are not really great saints, and so we must tread more cautiously than that. Matteo Ricci did a wonderful job, set a wonderful example of and, and used all sorts of secular knowledge as a way of, in, of integrating himself into the imperial court in Beijing. Um, nevertheless, it's always a dangerous task. And as I said, for the Hebrew world to integrate into the Greek world took several hundred years. And uh, many times we think, well, you know, in a decade or so, we ought to be able to do this. Well, we're not able to do that because the depths of other people's experiences are certainly as as uh, in, as determinative as the depths of our own experiences, and it's only through the interpersonal appreciation of the truth of the other person as a child of God that we're able to move forward with the kind of enculturation that does not sacrifice the proclamation of Jesus Christ um, and integrate it, for instance, with the vagaries of Vishnu or any of the other Hindu or Buddhist or gods or, or Buddha or any of the other great Eastern religions. So the extreme becomes important in the proclamation because it, it says in a way that discipleship of the Lord Jesus is in some way non-negotiable. It is not something that well, you can, you can, uh, you know, you can uh, follow the Lord Jesus. Um, and yet, and yet at the same time, well, we could also say that maybe Vishnu or Buddha is kind of another incarnational manifestation of, of the living God. And, and we could relativize Jesus and make him not a necessity for, for salvation, a trend in a great deal of contemporary theology, but never something, at least according to this gospel, which is acceptable. Because what is acceptable is you must endure the rejection and the ridicule. You must endure all of that for the sake, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and for the sake of the kingdom of the Lord. We, we can't see our rejection or our persecution. We can't see that as... Uh, in some way, shape, or form, we can't see that as a uh, uh, kind of a reason to turn away from the faith. We, it's, it's just simply not possible and still remain uh, a, a child of the Lord 
and still remain in some way, shape, or form a disciple of Jesus Christ. With that, with that in mind, then, we begin now to hear Jesus begin to explain what he means by this idea of the radical nature of discipleship. It cannot be watered down, it cannot be syncretized, and it cannot be something that takes its place in the great pantheon of gods of the world. Um, it must be something specifically, if we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the incarnation of the Word and the fullness of the self-revelation of being into the world, the whole idea of placing him in a relative position over and against other gods or even other perceptions of gods is somehow or other blasphemous and sacrilegious insofar as it denies what being has told us about itself insofar as it places God in a human pantheon and makes him one of many different creations of the human mind, of the human need, of the human heart, of the human dream, of the human wishes, and so forth. Rather than transcending, it brings us into that ancient kind of Hebrew dilemma, which uh, technically is called henotheism, where we say, all right, we admit there are many gods, but there is one God for us. And that we then, in the Old Testament, what they did is spent their time, this is what the whole catastrophe was of the exile into Babylon, was that the Lord, the Adonai, the Lord of Israel, seems to have been defeated by the gods of Babylon, in which case his authenticity and his uniqueness and his oneness is compromised, and maybe he is only one God among many who has been overpowered by foreign gods. We run the same paradigm today, we run the same risk of the same model today, that where we can say, well, there are maybe many gods, and, and, and we have to respect all those because we respect other people's cultures, but our God is our God. As soon as we do that, we can therefore begin to work on our God to make him look much more like ourselves. And we are not standing over and against him as otherness. And we are not in some way, shape, or form understanding or knowing him by the wisdom and the truth of his own mouth, of his own word, of his own life, of his own person. We may not do that. And that's part of the reason for the great hyperbola that goes on in today's gospel. There is no negotiation. We can use language as was done in the transition from Hebrew to Hellenic societies. We, we can allow language to change and incorporate fundamental ideas, but we must do so with the greatest of caution because language can change meaning and we have no right ever to change the meaning of the words that have come forth from being itself, from God himself. So that we have to be most cautious with language. And language can become a tool, it can become a plaything in the modern age. For instance, in the whole abortion debate, it is, it is a, a mortal sin for the pro-abortion people to refer to the child in the womb as a child because that elicits an emotional response of natural protectiveness toward children. It must be called a fetus. It must be dehumanized in, in order for it to, uh, 
in order for it not to strike emotional chords within the heart of the general public. Now, we have increasingly become sufficiently callous that um, some people are, are willing to call it a child but seeing nothing wrong with killing it. Um, which is beyond bizarre, because if you can take the life of a dependent child, you can take the life of anyone who's dependent. And who is to define what dependency means? We're finding out the consequences of this as our social policies become stranger and stranger and more and more entrenched within contemporary society. It's not just, it's not a question of imposing being on the world in which we live. It's somehow protecting the arena of authenticity so that being can at least communicate with a segment of the world whose task it then becomes to discover ways to communicate that to the rest of the world which is not open to the voice of God, to the person of God, to the revelation of God. It is, in, it, in, in its foundation, a uh, an evangelical thrust, an evangelical endeavor, but we have nothing to proclaim and nothing to share if we have allowed that which is authentically of God to be dissolved and somehow or other diluted into the culture of any present age, time, or place. There has to be a hard edge of truth that cuts through the confusing nature of human society, human culture, and human thought. And it must be clear and it must be concise in order that in its communication, the kernel of that truth remains even when dissipated through the vast crowds of the peoples of the earth. So Jesus then says, begins now, now he wants to, uh, now he, he wants to draw this out a little bit more. And he said, and indeed, which of you here intending to build a tower, would not first sit down and work out the cost to see if he had enough to complete it. Otherwise, if he laid the foundation and then found himself unable to finish the work, the onlookers would all start making fun of him and saying, here's a man who started to build and was unable to finish. Or again, what king marching to war against another king would not first of all sit down and consider whether with 10,000 men he could stand up to the other who advanced against him with 20,000. And so... If not, then while the other king is a long way off, he would send envoys to sue for peace. So in the same way, none of you can be my disciples unless he gives up all his possessions. Once again, this hyperbolic, all the possessions. What's the dearest possession that we certainly have? What is that possession? Basically, the dearest possession that we have is the implantation of the triune God and his revelation into the human heart, into the human soul. If we ourselves are unable to sustain the core of concise truth and the core of the concise, clear revelation into our own hearts as we interface with the world, then we become the foolish ones who set out to accomplish something that they could not accomplish. And so Jesus said, doesn't work that way. You have to be willing to lose everything to keep everything here, to keep the everything that is promised to you in your relationship with God. Extreme, yes. Harsh in some ways. But lived out boldly and heroically 
in the story of the disciples of the Lord throughout the centuries. We have but to look at the list of the great martyrs. We have but to look at the list of the great saints. We have, for instance, the uh, the person of John Chrysostom, one of the most venerated saints in both East and West Christianity, who time and time again was driven into exile, humiliated, deposed, and so forth, especially by the Empress Eudoxia, and uh, and finally in his 80s being driven into exile in Armenia and dying of exposure on the way, and yet without giving one inch, not that he was harsh, not that he was intolerant, not that he was in some way, shape, or form cantankerous and hard to get along with, but because he was a faithful companion of the Lord Jesus and he would not sell his master out to the foreigner. He would not sell out his friendship with Jesus. And I think that that's the thing that we look at and that's the thing that we explore in our contemporary world. Whether we want to call it enculturation, whether we deal with the whole (coughs) problematic of language, however we want to do it, that unless, again, listen to this, let it sink down now, filter through all of our filters, let it sink down into our own hearts and our own souls so that we hear not actually what was said but what was intended. If any man comes to me without hating his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, in his own life he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and come after me may not be my disciple. And so, in the same way, none of you can be my disciple unless he gives up all of his possessions. We can interpret that all along the scale from the residual core kernel of truth into the full-blown hyperbola of the words of the Lord in our lives. And people have faithfully responded to that all along that spectrum, all along that spectrum, and done so to their own salvation and to the benefit of the world. What we do not and cannot get away from is that God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to proclaim salvation, redemption for all and the possibility of salvation for all those who will accept it and receive it and act upon it. He has done that. And that the task, therefore, of the Christian is to retain that perspective and to find ways to share it as effectively as possible. We cannot get into the syncretism that is going on in the subcontinents of Asia, and but we can be inspired by the work of Matteo Ricci in, in, in China. We cannot do it with the, uh, with the Gnostic heresies of the first couple centuries, but we can be impressed with it in the writings of the fathers and the and and the the great compendium of truth that was put forth by Saint Augustine. We cannot, therefore, in some way sacrifice the core of reality for the delusions of the human mind and the human spirit. We must be faithful at all costs, and Christ refers to this as our cross. As we look across the whole spectrum of Christianity today, we see, for instance, those who have not taken this hyperbolus seriously in their lives, 
and we have found the church crippled by indifference and syncretism. And in doing so, we have begun to drift away from the only thing in this life that really matters, which is the presence of Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen, and filled with the promise and the hope of all that he has bestowed upon those who are faithful to him. So let us then be willing to take up our crosses and follow him through the fires and the persecutions of our secular world in such a way as to fulfill our mission to bring Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen into the hearts of all peoples everywhere. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.